Let us pray. <clears throat> God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, our family met in Washington, D.C. for a uh, vacation together. Our older daughter, daughter Julia, uh, lives there. Our fiance grew up there. Our younger daughter, Laura, joined us from San Francisco. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, D.C. is a really fun city. If you haven't ever had a chance to go, <coughs> I hope you will. So much fun to do, uh, so many things to do, uh, so many things to see. Uh, I could spend a week just at the National Gallery of Art and the museums of the Smithsonian. And so much good food to eat. Uh, anyone here ever been to Bill, ben, Ben's Chili Bowl in D.C.? Yeah, if you're ever there, find it. O order a half smoke. Don't tell your doctor about it, but you'll enjoy it. So it's really, it's really quite good. One of the interesting things about D.C., though, is that a long time ago, there was an act passed that no building in the district can be any taller than the Capitol. And the Capitol is like 280 or 290 feet tall. And so what you get is a city of low-slung buildings. And if you look at it from a distance, maybe if you fly into a uh, uh, national airport, uh, you, what you'll see is the Capitol, and you'll see the Washington Monument, and then off to the northwest, you'll see on a bluff, uh, Washington National Cathedral. It's really a beautiful cityscape. Up close, though, it looks a little different. So when we're in D.C., we often ride the metro. The metro is the subway system. It's really quite good. And you figure out where you want to go, and you figure out what color train you want to get on and at what station to get off at. But what often happens to me is that we get off at the station and we ride the escalator up to the surface and then you look around and all the buildings kind of look alike, whether it's an office building, a government building, a condo, an apartment. Unless I can get a glimpse of Washington Nash, uh, the Washington Monument or get a glimpse of the Capitol, I have no idea what direction I'm headed. I have no idea if I'm facing north, if I'm supposed to go right, or left, it's very disorienting. So I've been thinking about that experience of disorientation because this reading today from John 14 is a story about disorientation. And all of us either have or are, or at some point in our lives will experience that sense of disorientation. I mean, some of you might just be spatially challenged, and so every time you go outside, you're never really quite sure which way's up or east or west or yeah there we go all right <clears throat> often it happens at a change in in stage of life i remember going off to college and feeling very disoriented or maybe all of your your kids have gone off to college and you have an empty nest now that can be kind of disorienting maybe you've moved you started a new job maybe a relationship has ended uh, maybe you're living with an unexpected loss i mean that can leave us feeling unmoored um, uncertain what now? Where, where do we go next? And even if your life is pretty settled or stabled, uh, now and then it's worth thinking intentionally about where we're going and about how we're trying to get there. Otherwise, we're just sort of carried along by the conventional wisdom. Otherwise, we can be carried along by the prevailing patterns of the dominant culture, and we get a long ways downstream before we recognize uh, where we're being taken. Well, one of the gifts of the scriptures is to help us see uh, where we are and who we are and where we're headed, where we might want to go. And so today we read the story of disorientation from John chapter 14. And at this point in the Gospel of John, uh, the hopes and the dreams of the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are kind of disintegrating around them. 
I mean, this comes before the crucifixion. It comes before the resurrection. But Jesus has started to tell them that he's only going to be with them a little longer. He started to talk with them about what he knows is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem, that he'll be taken, that he will be killed. This is the same Jesus who had been telling them about his vision for the kind of life that people can live together if they trust him, if they are filled with the power of God. And they had started to believe him. They had started to follow him. And now it seems like it's all going to be taken away. So what now? Where do they go next? How do they find their way? In the reading, Jesus is assuring them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he goes on to say, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go, I will come again and take you to myself. Whatever's going to happen in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to abide with the Father, to dwell with the Father. And he uses this image of a house with many dwelling places to assure his disciples, his followers, his friends, that there's room for them, that there's room for all of us. I mean, this is what the kingdom of God, this is what the beloved community is like. There's room for everyone. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's loved. Everyone has enough. It can be a little hard to imagine. And so Thomas who famously has his doubts. Thomas is still a little unclear. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's when Jesus famously replies, I am the way and the truth and the life. One of the ways that that sentence, that phrase, has often been understood is that Jesus is going to heaven. And we can go to heaven too when we die if we believe in Jesus. If we go forward at the altar call, if we uh, say the sinner's prayer, Fairly transactional relationship. I'll do this and trust God will do that. Uh, that's what I grew up with, though, and I suspect many of you grew up with that understanding as well. And I want to be super clear. I really believe in Jesus. I really believe in heaven. I really believe in the power of prayer. But at this point in my life, I also believe that that's a pretty reductionist understanding of the scope, of the purpose, the power, the hope of the gospel. It's kind of a narrow, limited understanding doesn't have much to do with life now, doesn't much shape the way we live here, so it's not really all that helpful in finding our way when we are disoriented. <clears throat> it reminds me of a story that Daryl Ness told me uh, when I was visiting him once up at Camp Cameron. Some of you will remember Daryl, part of our congregation, about three years ago. He moved up to Washington to be the director of Camp Cameron, which is owned by the Mennonite churches in Washington. It's a camp up in, uh, in the Central Cascades. So to get there, you go up to, you go up to Leavenworth, and you drive on a paved road about eight miles out of town, and then there's a gravel road that you turn, and you go up about a mile, and there's some houses along the way, and there's a couple farms, and then there's the camp. Uh, that's the last building. There's nothing to the road. The road goes on up onto four service roads. <clears throat> well, in the winter, it snows a lot in Central Cascades, and Daryl's job was to plow that road. Plowed it from the camp down to the paved road, and he made some deals with some of the neighbors, and um, his job was to plow the road. Well. He told me that what would often happen on the weekends is that he would hear a car driving up the road. He wasn't expecting anyone, and it was almost always the same thing. It was a couple. They were usually on a romantic getaway. They booked an Airbnb, and they had looked on their phone for a GPS route. And GPS knew that there were those four service roads and that that would be the shortest way. And so they would get to the camp, and now they're faced with 
GPS saying go this way, and a bank of snow. And you know what they usually did? They drove on. And then, about an hour later, Daryl said it was usually the guy who would come slumping down through the snow and knock on the door, and Daryl would answer and it'd say, yeah, you are going to need help. It's a chore to get you out of there, which uh, really throws a bucket of water on whatever romantic fires had, had been burning there. <laughs> but those drivers had a pretty narrow, limited understanding of how to get where they were trying to go, and they got stuck. When Jesus says, I am the way, it's about more than just how to get to heaven when we die. It's about how to abide with God now, how to live in love now, how to do God's will on earth as in heaven now, because Jesus is the way to the kind of life together that he calls the kingdom of God or the beloved community. Jesus is the way because Jesus is the truth. Jesus tells us the truth. Jesus tells us the truth about who we are, about who we're created to be, tells us the truth about what makes life meaningful and abundant. In many ways, the Gospels, the stories that the Gospels tell about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they're like a mirror. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we can see a reflection of ourselves. We can see ourselves more truthfully in his image, more uh, accurately, more carefully. Sometimes it's hard to look because we can see where we come up short. We can see where we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. It's what the Bible calls sin. But because of God's grace, God's love, God's spirit, we can also see what's possible. We can see our way toward lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Jesus is the way because he is the truth and because he is the life. Jesus shows us what love looks like. He shows us what it looks like to live in love even in the hardest moments imaginable. But even more, Jesus is the source of life, and that's crucial. If Jesus is only an example of the way things are supposed to be, the way we are supposed to live, I can't keep up. I don't have enough patience, enough grace, enough compassion, enough endurance. Some of you only see me here on Sundays for two hours. I'm on my best behavior today. The rest of the week, I can get kind of snippy at times. I can get a little judgmental. I can be kind of short with people, apathetic, cynical, and I'm pretty sure it's not just me. But Jesus is the source of life. In fact, in the next verses uh, that we didn't read, but if you go on a little further in John 14, Jesus promises the gift of the Spirit. He promises that the Spirit, if we'll open our hearts and our souls will infuse us, will infuse us with more love than we can generate on our own, with more grace than I can generate by myself, more wisdom and more mercy and more hope. And that's how Jesus can say, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is the way because Jesus is the truth and because Jesus is the life, which is uh, good theology. It's what you would expect from a seminary-trained pastor. But, um, but how do we actually find our way? How do we find a way when things have gotten sideways, uh, when we find ourselves on unfamiliar turf, life's gotten very complex, uh, it feels like things are disintegrating, we've gotten ourselves disoriented? Well, this week, um, I was reading about some experiments that were done back in the 1940s, and I think those experiments can help us think about finding our way. They were done by a guy named Edward Tolman, uh, who was a professor where I went to school down at Cal. He was also an experimental psychologist. 
And these experiments were done on lab rats, which when I say it, I realize that might not be what you thought you were going to hear in church, but too late. I'm going for it anyway. So what they did in these experiments is they would put mice, lab, well, lab rats actually, in, in a maze, right? And uh, they would put a reward in the food box at the end. Cheese, I suppose. And so they put a, a rat in, and it would scamper about, and then it would sort of probe, and then eventually it would find its way to the reward in the box. And they did this with a number of mice. Well, they did this four nights, three times a night. And what they discovered is, by the 12th time, virtually all the mice knew how to go straight from the start, straight to the food, right? And one of the explanations for that behavior is fairly limited and narrow, and that is it's just determined by reward. Put me in here, I go straight, I go left, I go right, I go right, I go left again, right again, I get cheese. But then they changed the maze. And so now, same starting point, but the path that had led to the food was now blocked. And instead, there were 18 other possible paths that radiated out. What's a mouse, what's a rat supposed to do? If they only know that one path, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way to get to the cheese, they're kind of stuck. You would think that they would just randomly scamper about. But what happened was they put the, the rats in and there was this sort of tentative probing, but what they noticed is virtually all the rats took the same path out of the 18 available on offer. And they all took the path that led in the direction of where the cheese had been. Even though the route was closed, the original route was closed, they, they knew where to find the cheese. And the conclusion was that they had developed an internal cognitive map. Even though the way was blocked, they still had a sense of where they were trying to get. And that's the way that they chose. Well, of course, we develop cognitive spatial maps too. If I want to reward myself with a chocolate hazelnut milkshake, I go to Burgerville, and I know there's one on Northeast Gleason and Northeast 82nd. And from my house, I know a very direct route to get there. But even if 84 uh, eastbound is backed up, I can still get there, because I have a cognitive sense, a spatial map of where it is. I can find an alternate route. Coleman also proposed that we're constantly creating cognitive social maps. Maps that help us navigate life. They're not built on spatial cues, but on relational cues. They're built on what we observe in people around us, what we learn from people that we listen to, the lessons that come from our experiences. All that we accrue helps us navigate our way through life. Tolman warned that if we have a narrowly drawn social map, then it's going to lead to exclusion and discrimination and hatred and oppression. But a broader social map can inspire understanding and empathy and compassion. And that's where Holman found hope before, as he wrote it, the great God-given maze, which is our human world. What gives me hope is that the ways of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, the community of Jesus can help us draw a broad map, can help us create a social map that we can count on even in the most disorienting days, a map that will point us toward justice and mercy and forgiveness. Even when it's hard what, to know what to do next, a map that will orient us toward kindness and patience and hope. And even when we feel completely lost, a map that assures us that God 
is always close at hand. Those maps, that internal cognitive sense of place, of faith, of hope, comes the steady habit of prayer, comes from a mindful reading of the scriptures, and it comes of close connections with a community of people that love Jesus, which is, I hope, what Portland Mennonite Church will be for each of us, because that's how we're going to find our way. Reminds me of what uh, the way Dorothy Day put it. Dorothy Day, of course, was the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. She wrote, all the way to heaven is heaven, because Jesus said, I am the way. Thanks be to God. Amen.